Well, good morning and Merry Christmas, everyone. Uh, I am not a native Singaporean, if you couldn't tell. I grew up in the United States, uh, and so I inherited a number of expectations when it comes to the holiday of Christmas. Uh, I have no idea how or why a religion that began in the Middle East became so associated with cold weather and snow. But it did, and on my second Christmas here at One Degrees North Latitude, I'm still dreaming of a white Christmas. <laughs> Chestnuts roasting on an open fire, Jack Frost nipping at your nose. Uh, you may say that I am ridiculous, but tonight I will go to sleep with this built-in desire and thought that maybe tomorrow morning there will be a nice blanket of white, packable snow, good for snowball fights and making snowmen. I assume you all tell me that such expectations are misplaced, they're foolish, and they're ridiculous. Though that may be, I'm persuaded that I'm not alone. Because as I walk out of my house and down towards Orchard Road, what are all the decorations that I see? Snowmen, snowflakes, and evergreen trees. So I think I'm not alone here in Singapore, and I say, let it snow. <laughs> we joke, but expectations are a powerful thing in life, aren't they? They form without much thought on our part. We just have them. We have expectations about how our life is going to unfold in different seasons for school years and early employment and family and aging and retirement. We have lots of expectations of the people around us, how, how they should and will treat us. We have expectations about our employer perhaps our employees, those that we supervise or those that supervise us. We have expectations of our families, our parents, our kids, siblings. And of course, underneath all of that, we have expectations about God. We know that because when the unexpected comes, God is often the first one that we question. Why is this happening to me right now? This morning, I want us to consider something. What happens when our expectations are wrongly placed? When our problem is not with what's happening, but with what we were expecting. In our Christmas series this last month, we've been studying Jesus' infancy narrative in the first two chapters of Matthew's Gospel and everything we've covered so far describes the glorious arrival of the Son of God. So Brian helped us think about how the genealogy of Jesus establishes him as the promised king, the son of David and the son of Abraham. Then John led us to consider the, the wonder of the angelic announcements to Joseph that the fetus in his fiancée's womb is not a scandal, but a savior. Then Marcus last week took us to sacred ground as magi from the east 
became the first Gentiles to worship at the feet of the Son of God, the one whose inheritance is the nations and the end of the earth, his possession. All of those texts are a wonderful and glorious beginning to the story. But they're also incomplete. As Matthew sets the stage for Jesus' ministry, he doesn't want us to get the idea that things will be all sunshine and roses. To do that would be to lead the reader to expect the wrong thing about Jesus. We might be ready then to expect strength, triumph, glory right away rather than first dependence, patience, and humility. We might expect that for our lives as well. And so Matthew has a message for us this morning. He wants to reset our expectations. In the first century, readers had the specific need to understand how the royal son of Bethlehem grew up in no account Nazareth. You and I have the need to understand what it means for us to follow him. This Jesus who was called the Nazarene. So I want us to think about three things this morning that we should be expecting. Three things that should characterize the child of God. Let's think first about dependence. Let's think secondly about patience. And let's think thirdly about humility. Dependence, patience, and humility. It's my prayer this morning that our study would help you and I to recalibrate our expectations, not just of a holiday, but of our very lives. So turn in your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 2, and let's think first about dependence. We're in Matthew 2, verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. We'll stop there. The the they that we encounter in verse 13, it's referring to the Magi, these wise men that we looked at last week. Uh, Remember, they had stopped in Jerusalem to inquire about the location of the Messiah, where he was to be born. And Herod had deceitfully told them he, he also wanted to find and worship the child. He was hoping that they would report back to him. But God instead warned them in a dream not to do so. So after worshiping Jesus and giving him gifts, they've returned to their country by another route. And what we have here as we pick up the story is is a very time-sensitive series of events. Uh, Notice the timestamp there in verse 13. When they had departed, so, so I think we're talking about the same day. And then in verse 14, the prompt obedience of Joseph is by night. You don't leave on a journey at night unless the situation is urgent and desperate, and it was. The one who was born king of the Jews is about to be murdered. In the dream, Joseph is told to flee to Egypt. That's a close place, relatively, just a a couple hundred kilometers away, natural place to go. 
And Egypt was a Roman province, not under the jurisdiction of Herod, so a reasonable safe haven. But Matthew tells us that there's a much more important thing going on. In the providence of God, they go to Egypt, he says, to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. It's from Hosea 11, a very moving passage of the Lord's love for Israel in spite of their unfaithfulness to him. So the first verse of that chapter in Hosea says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Now that language of sonship or son of God carves a a deep path in the story of the Bible. From Adam and Israel and now to Jesus, it will then flow to all those adopted into God's family by faith in Christ. But Matthew wants us to see both that Jesus is the Son of God and that he's walking in the footsteps of Israel, who was called God's Son. Just as Israel fled death in Canaan due to famine by going down to Egypt in the book of Genesis, so Jesus flees death in Canaan by going down to Egypt. Both are then called out of Egypt by the power and purpose of God. You and I are supposed to take something theological and something personal away from this. Theologically, we're to understand that Jesus came to live the life of every man. He came to walk in the shoes, so to speak, of Adam and Israel, you and I, to live on this earth under God's law and dependent on God's help. In the incarnation we celebrate at Christmas, he didn't cease to be God, But he confined himself to the limitations and requirements of living as a man. This was necessary if he was going to be a suitable substitute for you and I in his death. That's what we mean when we say that Jesus lived the life that we should have lived so that he could then die the death that we deserve to die. This is pictured powerfully here by him literally traveling the path of Israel down to Egypt and then eventually back up. But we're also to take something personal away from this. We're watching how God works to protect his child, aren't we? How he protects his son. Just as the sword that Herod is swinging comes down, God removes him from under the blow. It's so interesting to me that this story is told from the perspective of Joseph, the the dad who's not biologically the dad. John helped us think two weeks ago about his internal deliberations as as first he resolved to divorce his pregnant fiancée quietly, but then he believes and he obeys the message of the angel in a dream to him. In this dream, God now asks him to act as a father would, leading protecting, providing for his family. What we're seeing in this scene is the practical outworking of the doctrine of God's providence. Here it is, it is at work preserving the life of Jesus until he can fulfill his mission. Jesus would indeed die, just not until he had accomplished his mission. His were days that God had numbered. Friends, this applies every bit as much to you and I. Don't we sing that song, Mine Are Days, 
that God has numbered. Have you thought on that recently? That all your days were written in his book before one of them came to be? Until the last one is spoken for, a father's care watches over you. The old confessions describe the perseverance of the saints this way. A special providence watches over their welfare. And they are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. Brothers and sisters, do you believe that? Do you believe a special providence watches over your welfare? When you feel anxiety rising over some change in your financial situation, your health situation, your employment situation, think on this. God isn't a step behind. He's a step ahead. The child of God is protected by the providence of God until her mission is completed, until his mission is completed. The infant Jesus depended on that. We depend on that. We live with the same dependence that Jesus had on his father here. You know, sometimes when we talk about prayer, one of the first things we feel is, I I know that my prayer life should be better than it is. I should really get to praying. But I think so often the problem isn't just that we need more discipline in our lives. It's that we need an active posture of dependence. To realize when we wake up in the morning, we we don't just need to, to go through the checklist of all the things that we need to do to get out the door and get to work and accomplish things. We need an active posture of relying on God to see things as he wants us to see them, to have the strength to respond to people who sin against us with grace and forgiveness, a thousand other things. Friends, think this morning about your need to depend in all things on your Father and let that fuel your prayer life. So that's the first thing that we're to expect. First thing that we need is an attitude of dependence. Let's keep reading in verse 16 and think secondly about patience. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. The scene shifts here from the fleeing family to Herod and his royal palace. It's interesting that Matthew says Herod saw he had been tricked by the wise men. They probably hadn't initially realized his evil intent, but picked it up somewhere along the way. And of course, the warning in a dream confirmed that they would be slipping out of town without telling him. His response here is fury. In a rage, he sends soldiers to kill all the boys two years old and under Bethlehem and the surrounding region. He picks two as an approximation based on when the Magi told him the star had appeared. We can only guess how many boys we're talking about, 20 
40, maybe more. We get an idea here of just how brutal and evil a man he was. I was meditating this week and thinking about atrocities committed. It's not an enjoyable business. There are many happening in our own time. Wikipedia keeps a, a page of, of active war zones in the world listed by cumulative number of deaths, both military and civilian. Ukraine and Israel and Gaza are in the news a great deal, but there are many more. Yemen and Syria, Nigeria, and Kashmir. In many of them, fighting is not kept to armed troops, but targets the weakest, targets the unarmed, the children. We could read this story simply as yet another example of the terrible things done by wicked men and wicked leaders. And of course, atrocities are not just committed in war zones. Many so-called civilized societies There are sections of hospitals just devoted to the killing of children, what we call abortion. But in the biblical storyline, this is, of course, something more. Behind Herod stands the greater evil that we begin reading about from the first pages of Scripture, where Satan, that ancient enemy of God, deceives the first man and woman. We're told in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that enmity, hatred, between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman would continue until one day the serpent bites the heel of the seed of the woman and the seed of the woman crushes his head. That battle hangs over the whole biblical storyline and indeed all of human history. So we see the strike of the snake misses Jesus here. But it falls on the children of Bethlehem. They are so-called collateral damage. A Christian looks at the terrible things happening in this world and understands that things are not as they should be. But at the same time, also realizes they are not as they will be. That one day all will be well again. There is a a patience, a perseverance, an endurance that is born of this very real hope. That is the light in this dark passage. The child is preserved, isn't he? The prince survives, this one who is called the Prince of Peace. I wonder how the, the free thinker responds to the evil in this world. Maybe that's you. I meet many free thinkers here. I I like the term better than atheist, I think, by the way. As long as it means you are actually thinking about the questions and not dodging them. If you think this world is all there is, what do you do with evil like we just read about? I guess you might see the problem as a lack of education maybe as a lack of good government. Maybe you hopefully suppose that mankind is progressing to higher levels of morality despite all the evidence to the contrary. 
I'd suggest to you that the problem of evil is actually much more complicated than that. For one, we can rarely keep evil out there as a matter of speculation. Malice and betrayal and tragedy, like we read about here, eventually show up on our own doorstep, where it's no longer an intellectual question, when it's us or it's someone we love. We can see in this text that the Bible doesn't duck the problem of human evil with all its terrible effects. It tells us where it came from, tells us why it's here. But it also doesn't just present the problem as out there somewhere. Evil people doing evil things. Rather, it locates the problem in here. It tells us in a very uncomfortable way that Herod's story is actually our story. A vain, selfish, vindictive man who happened to end up, in his case, with more power than was good for him. But when we look inside of our own hearts, what do we find? Vanity? Self-centeredness? The desire to get even with those around us? I don't know anybody who put it better than the Russian writer Alexander Solzhenitsyn in his famous book. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? What do we do with that? The evil out there that sometimes hits close to home, and the evil in here that makes us kinfolk with the workers of iniquity iniquity that we so easily despise. Well, notice Matthew's answer. His answer is to tell us that this tragedy is actually fulfilling a prophecy. He quotes Jeremiah, chapter 31, verse 15. This takes a little bit of unpacking, but it's well worth it for the truth he wants us to see. Look at verse 18 again. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now, this text is referring to the exile of Israel 600 years earlier. Because of unrepentant sin, they were conquered, and many exiles were carried off to Babylon. So this place, Ramah, it's about eight kilometers north of Jerusalem. It's mentioned because it's where Jacob... His wife, Rachel, so so Jacob renamed Israel, so Jacob's the father, he's Israel. His wife is the mother of Israel, Rachel. She's buried there in Ramah. So she's described as weeping for her children who are no more because they've been taken into exile. God's judgment fell on them for their sin in the form of their children being taken away. So we're told here that the tears of the Bethlehem mothers fulfill Rachel's tears from Jeremiah 31. You with me so far? But what would not have been lost on the first hearers is that Jeremiah 31 is not about the beginning of the exile. It's about the end of the exile. 
So the tears wept for Israel during their 70 years of captivity are about to be comforted because the exile is ending. That's what Jeremiah 31 is all about. That would be a great thing for you to do this afternoon. Just, just take about 20 minutes, get your Bible, and read Jeremiah 31. It will be very encouraging to you. The near, very next verse is this. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there's a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. So, so Matthew is saying something like this. The night is always darkest right before the dawn. I think that's what he's saying. As terrible as this tragedy is, it actually signals the end of the exile on the horizon. There is hope for your future. They would have to be patient, but that which ends their tears is already on the way. All right, so what do you and I do with that? Uh, how do you and I have patience as we wait for the end of our exile? I think we need two things. I think we need a place to weep and a reason to hope. A place to weep and a reason to hope. Uh, for years in Shanghai, I, I led a men's Bible study. And one of the things we would often do right at the end of the Bible study is just go around and share something we were struggling with uh, in life. So sometimes guys would <clears throat> share a sin struggle, anger, or, or lust, or discontent. Other times, it, it was bigger stuff, uh, deeper stuff. Somebody lost a job. Somebody having marriage trouble, someone's adult child walking away from the faith. And as the leader, I would always go last. That's the prerogative of the leader, right? And I would joke with them often as it came to me. I would say the whole point of the men's group was to make me feel better about my life. Because after I had heard all the things that were going on for them, my problems seemed to shrink in many ways. Thank you guys for sharing my problem seems smaller. Well, friends, how many times is it just like that? We, we come in here thinking that it's just us. The, the tears, the sorrow, the struggle. And then we have a conversation with someone, and if they're honest with us, it helps us to realize and remember it's all of us. Life in this fallen world is filled with tears. I think one of the ways that God redeems the tragedies and trials of your life is when you share them with me, share them with each other. You tell me that it's been hard, but you're still trying to trust God. And by doing so, you put a little more steel in my backbone. Suffering in silence is no good that way. Maybe in this last week of 2023, you could push yourself to reflect on how God has helped you persevere in the last year, how he's helped you to have patience. You could meet up with someone to share that, or you could decide to share that in your community group. Now, one of the reasons you, you hear us beating the drum so much for church membership all the time is that we're, we're convinced that no one is strong enough to go it alone. You might think you are, but you're not. I'm not. Don't go it alone. We need a place to weep. 
But second, we also need a reason to hope. We need to make sure that our understanding of the end times, our eschatology, is clear. We don't live at the time of Israel's exile in Babylon or or the time of the first coming of the Messiah. We, We live in the last days, meaning there are no more eras to come or to go through before the end. Satan, our ancient foe, is raging, but he's a defeated enemy. The Christ has come. His attack on him failed at his birth. Thirty years later, it seemed to strike home with Jesus' death on the cross, but it was a Pyrrhic victory. It won the battle but lost the war. For the child of Bethlehem would again escape the bonds of death in his resurrection from the grave. Out of death, God called his son. Because of that, you and I have a reason to hope, don't we? And to have patience. We can say with the old hymn writer, this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. My treasures and my hopes are placed beyond the blue. Many friends and kin have gone on before. I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Dependence, patience, There's a third and final thing required of the child of God. Let's keep reading in verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel, But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. All right, our final snapshot of Jesus' infancy narrative. It has two stages here. Two more angelic visions and dream. The first one saying Herod is dead, so Joseph can lead the family home. That's verses 19 to 21. And then a second one there in verse 22, saying that though Herod is dead, his son Archelaus was reigning in Judea. Presumably he's just as dangerous as his dad. So they go up to Galilee in northern Israel. Notice that little phrase. I love that. The child and his mother. It It's twice there in verses 20 and 21. Rather than the expected mother and child, it's like it just constantly reminds us that this is all about Jesus. And so they settle down in the town of Nazareth. I think it's generous to call it a city there. Uh, Nazareth, Nazareth may be famous to us because of Jesus, but Matthew is writing this to explain how the Messiah ends up hailing from a town that was famous for not being famous. John's gospel, when Philip goes to tell his brother Nathaniel that they found the Messiah and it's Jesus of Nazareth, you remember what he said? Anything good come out of Nazareth? It's his way of saying, come on, no way. Acts 24, when they're trumping up charges against the apostle Paul and they say he is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect, that's a charge that's meant to sting. We know how credentials work. We spend our early lives constructing a resume 
with the hope that it will get us good jobs in the future. And we know how many jobs work. You know, they get a bunch of resumes. Some get immediately put over here. Doesn't have the right credentials. When the minds of a first century Jew being from Nazareth means you're not the Messiah. There's no way a qualified leader comes from there. I tried to ask, I tried to ask Singaporean friends, like, where would that be in Singapore? Uh, the only thing I got was Ishwin, but, 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 but I've, I've been there. I, it seems like a nice place to me. I don't know what that's all about. No way a qualified leader comes from there. But Matthew begs to differ, and he gives us one final fulfillment quotation in verse 23. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, let me save you the time uh, looking this up. There are no Old Testament verses that say the Messiah would be called a Nazarene. But Matthew isn't trying to quote. When he says what was spoken by the prophets, plural, he means not just Isaiah or Jeremiah or some other prophet, but the prophets collectively. Uh, Matthew's banking on us knowing two things. First, that you know the context, that Nazareth is a a despised, rejected, no-account backwater of a place. Second, the prophetic expectation that the Messiah would be despised and rejected of men. That when he comes, he would not at first be called king of kings, but something else. Well, where do we see that? I'll give you two places. One in Psalm 22, that messianic psalm, verse 6, says, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. Or that extended passage from Isaiah 53, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, we esteemed him not. I wonder if you've ever stopped and realized that this is the only physical description anywhere in the Bible about Jesus Christ. We don't have any idea what he looked like. We just know he wasn't handsome. He was nothing to look at. It's as average as average can be. And he came from nowhere. That phrase, like a root out of dry ground, it's just what Matthew has in mind when he says, Jesus the Messiah was called a Nazarene. We're saying he grew up as a nobody. No fame, no glory. Where did he go to secondary school? Where did he go to university? It doesn't matter. You bring his family any glory? No. In God's plan, he was intentionally a nobody from nowhere. Now, why would he do that? I, <clears throat> I don't think it was necessary for Jesus to accomplish our salvation. I think he could have grown up in Jerusalem and still died for our sins. It seems rather a part of God's evangelistic strategy to use the humility of the Savior 
to rebuke the pride of those he came to redeem. Somehow that is essential if we are going to see and believe the gospel. I mean, that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, what is weak to shame the strong, what is low and despised, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being can boast in his presence. Rather, that we would learn to boast in the Lord. You know, everyone likes being on the winning team, siding with the rich, powerful, the successful. That's not what Christianity is all about. It's not what Christmas means. Not that Jesus doesn't have plenty of glory. He's the Prince of Heaven. Saying earlier, He's the theme of Heaven's praises. The one through whom all things were made. The one who upholds all things by the word of His power. But it seemed fitting in the mind of God for the one laying aside his heavenly glory, taking to himself a frail human nature to humble himself all the way down. He who was rich beyond all measure, all for love's sake, became poor. Thrones for a manger did surrender. Sapphire paved courts for stable floor. Thou who wast rich beyond all measure, all for love's sake, becamest poor. I hope you were paying attention to the words as Caleb played the offertory last week. It's beautiful. Born in a humble place to a humble family, quickly relocated as a political refugee, and he settles down in a forgotten place to do the humble work of obedience and fulfilling all righteousness. Michael Card put it this way. The Nazarene had come to live the life of every man. He came, he saw, he surrendered all so that we might be born again. And the fact of his humanity was there for all to see, for he was unlike any other man, and yet so much like me. So what does that mean for us on Christmas Eve? The humility of our Savior. You and I are anything but humble, if we're honest. We spend so much of our lives worried about face. Not so much about who we actually are, but how we're perceived. Our money isn't so much about food and clothing and shelter as it is about appearance and pleasure and status. Our careers are so often about dreams of self-actualization and proving ourselves to the world rather than just the stewardship of gifts and talents he's given. We strive to get ahead and bristle at others' success, not with the Savior, not with the one they call the Nazarene. The question for us this morning is what will we do with him? There's an invitation here. 
a Christmas invitation to see in the Christ all that you want, all that you need. It's here. If you'll see yourself as helpless to solve the problem of your own lostness, your own fallenness, your own sin, friend, there's nothing you can do to make yourself right with God. His standard is holiness, and you haven't met it. The only way that you are going to be reconciled to your creator is if you will acknowledge that fact and turn from your sin and trust in Christ. Why would you not do that this morning? Why would you not acknowledge your need and just pray to God, maybe for the first time, and say, God, I'm helpless to solve my own sin problem. Would you forgive me based on what Jesus did on the cross? Oh, I pray that you would do that this morning. I'd love to talk to you more about that after the service. Maybe you could talk to somebody around you, somebody who brought you. Brothers and sisters in Christ, let this mind be among you that was also in Christ Jesus. Humility should mark us, our speech, our relationships, our life expectations. God has already been better to us than we could ever hope to deserve. Christmas is not about gifts. It's about a gift, the gift. Are we expecting the right things? We should conclude. Dependence, patience, humility. They marked Jesus in his first coming, contrary to the expectations people would have had. They teach those of us who follow him what we should expect and what we need. You know, there are no Christmas carols written directly about this text. Not that I could find. I guess I just don't know if refugee relocations, homicidal rulers, and dead-end towns make for great poetry. But they do speak of the curse of sin that remains and the promise that the Nazarene, the man of sorrows, came so that sin and sorrows would no longer grow, nor thorns infest the ground He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found.